You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated three meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. I have a really special guest. I'm really honored to have him on here. It is John Spencer. He is the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He's also a subject matter expert on the Mumbai attacks that happened in uh, 2008. In fact, November 26, 2008. So it's the 13-year anniversary. John Spencer also is the Urban Warfare Project podcast host. So make sure you check out his podcast. It's really great content. But if you can back up with me for about a month and a half, you remember that I went out to uh, NATO to uh, speak at the Urban Environment Summit there about a month and a half ago. We talked about that on the show. I heard several presentations, one of which was a, it was a standout by far. And it was this presentation about what happened during the Mumbai terrorist attacks. And John went through all these really good details uh, outlining what happened. Uh, what, what the responders were doing, what emergency managers should be doing. And so he had several key components there. Really great for our audience. Today is the 13-year anniversary. John, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Hey, it's a real honor to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just dive into it because when you gave your presentation, we're going to try to take a, what was it, our presentation into 30 to 40 minutes with injects of questions. So it's going to be a little different than normal, but can you give a general perspective to this audience of emergency managers, first responders of what happened from A to Z and kind of a, a strategic level perspective. I can sure try, John. So on, you know that I was there in 2018, which was 10 years after the attacks. This attack happened on November 26, 2008. Uh, the Indian people call it 2611, almost like our 911. So commonly referred to as the 2008 Mumbai terrorist attacks or 2611 for short. Uh, and on November 26, 2008, basically 10 operatives of a Pakistani terrorist group um, that had been trained and almost conducted like a Navy SEAL type of 
infiltration, a seaborne infiltration. So they came in, they actually launched from Pakistan, traveled by boat. Um, they had a massive deception plan to get into India. And Mumbai is a, is a mega city. So it's a city of about 17 million at the time that sits on the coast of India. But they launched from Pakistan, made it a night sea insertion, which was incredibly impressive, into two different loading or landing sites. Uh, so there's 10 terrorists. They split up into two boats. They actually camouflaged even the boats to look like fishing boats. And they came in on their fishing slums. So as an urban warfare scholar, just the, the amount of planning they had to take to get these guys into position uh, and using basically the city, the systems of the city and, and took advantage of basically open gaps in security. So you had these giant fishing slums in India. There's giant slums all over in Mumbai. But we're able to insert and, and not really cause any attention, insert it into areas that wouldn't call police, basically, if they saw them. Uh, so they took advantage of all that. They were camouflaged with like uh, tourists. So they're dressed like a, basically in American clothes with the classic European backpacks. Uh, even the so bracelets, they, right? Yeah, they're, they even had yeah, the religious bracelets, which is just mind-blowing. And we noted that the, they basically scouted all this this plan and this recon years in advance they even used an american pakistani named david headley who went to all the sites for for a long time took photos did gps targeting mm. i mean this was such a coordinated plan which we know it was coordinated by pakistani intelligence services and the pakistani military trained some of these terrorists i think you heard me say as a kind of a military scholar what i found up front and for, foremost incredible was that the actual 10 terrorists weren't like Delta operators or Navy SEALs. They were actually like privates in my mind, mm -hmm. but they each had a satellite phone in their ear, which was connected back in Pakistan through secure telecommunications. And they were basically being remotely controlled. So they're remotely controlled humans to be able to pull this off because I mean, they had, you know, less than a year of training and they, but still that, that was incredible. It's also incredible to think about the amount of intelligence that just an earpiece can provide. Because I, when I'm when I'm when I'm envisioning this, and I don't know this is like how legit this was. Like they either had open source, or they had maybe a satellite imagery, or they had, you know, even in the news once uh, once it broke out. But to be able to give direction blindly to people with minimal training and that precise is is truly scary to think about, you know, yeah. um, and, yeah. and just like the amount. So like when I think of like the staging of 9-11, the 9-11 commission with, um, when that was processed, every, all the terrorists were here legitimately, quote unquote, legitimately. They use systems to infiltrate uh, the planes to be able to get on. They didn't, you know, they didn't come by sea in the middle of the night. And that's that's really interesting, like the tempo of what Pakistani, you know, uh, uh, the, like these these ten individuals had to do in that in that short amount of time. It was go, kill, and then die. Right? I mean, that was essentially the mission. Yeah, absolutely. They were all supposed to be suicide bombers, basically suicide terrorists, and that was part of the. So this is basically proxy warfare, right? What we call proxy warfare, where one nation is attacking another but doesn't want to be known that he's doing it. So these 10, the plan for these 10 terrorists where they all would die. And basically they all did that, but one who made a big mistake. And that's 
really the only reason we know so much about what how we know. Yeah, they did intercept some of the communication that was happening from Pakistan to the terrorists. But the fact that this one guy didn't die is where most of the information we know about why, how it was conducted and everything. Yeah. Well, he's, he messed up, but good, good for us. Good for the good guys, I guess. Yeah. And it was a first responder basically who literally grabbed his weapon and took around to the chest that allowed another first, you know, another policeman to tackle him. Yeah. Uh, what so, a hero. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're now on the shore They So you were talking about, um, you're giving this reference of slum, slum dog millionaire and the makeup of the city. Can you talk about using the systems of the city to get into the city? Yeah. So you know, Mumbai is a, you know, it's a, it's one of them. It's the fourth most populous city in the world. It is extremely dense. And we, we often say that in urban warfare scholars about density per square mile. And, and in some parts of Mumbai, it's up to 86,000 people per square mile. And that's because if you've ever, there's a book called Planet of the Slums, which is really talking about India. There's over 43% of the Mumbai city population lives in a slum. And that's 9 million people. And some of those slums are a million people. So, you know, Slumdog Millionaire, the, the famous movie is, is about a slum in Mumbai called Davari that has over a million people. And all along the coast, if you actually see pictures of Mumbai, you see the entire coast is built. It has slums, fishing slums. And actually, most people don't understand, even some of the slums like the bar are built on top of basically the trash heaps that were created by the city. So they go out and dump the trash and they built homes on top of the trash heaps. Like that's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. And yeah. so that's like 9 million people who are outside of your city governance system, right? So that's how you can use places like that that aren't unsecure, right? So it's not the, the, the favelas of, of Rio that are very dangerous. I mean, we we toured, we we went in on a tour of Davari, mm. supposedly to help people see that Davari is a good place and they have economy. It, it didn't give me that feeling, but uh, <laughs> they you know the, they basically don't have services extended to them. There's some, yeah. uh, but so there's no there are police kind of in there, but you could see how it would be easy to move through them, uh, and and there'd be a lot less. Although this this plan had multiple basically fail safes right so they split up into teams as soon as they hit the ground so that way if one team was discovered and stopped the entire operation was still happening and they also used so not only did they use the flows of the city right so these these open gaps in security that they can insert they they even knew the timing of the city so at this time on november 26 2008 at this time of night there was a major cricket game between india in England, which was huge to them. So almost like the entire 17 million person city is glued to a TV watching this game. And somehow the terrorists knew that and timed their night sea insertion to that event. It's, it's just crazy. Wild, yeah. The, the amount of detail that went into the planning of this, it sounds from like a preventative side. I know we talk about like there's eight steps to terrorism usually in the US. But like from a preventative side, it sounds almost impossible with the lack of security forces in a 9 million person uh, population slums to, you know, the camouflage, essentially. Um, it's interesting that they, uh, what I found fascinating about when you were talking about that now and before um, was like, 
they didn't want to integrate with the people there. They wanted to look like tourists. And I wonder why that is. Is it because, like, I don't want to deal with the tourists. I'm just going to let them go wherever they want to go? Or Yeah, you, you want to become the clutter, right? You want to become the noise. Clearly, they're not going to look like, I mean, they had shortcut haircuts, but they're Pakistani. They're not going to look like Indians. Mm. You know, a group of military-age males that don't look like you um, would be abnormal but they were, they were, they wanted to like the clutter of the tourism. And, and we've all seen backpackers in, you know, whether you've been to Europe or whatever. Yeah. So they had these giant backpacks, which were normal to civilians, but you couldn't, you couldn't insert with that size of a backpack unless you disguised yourself like the clutter. And these were basically backpacks from hell, right, John? So they had AK-47s, pistols, uh, handmade bombs, a little bit of food to survive supposedly drugs to, to hype them up I mean, they were literally backpacks from hell that they each had on their backs and they were each person was its own basically killing machine mm. and w- when they basically executed the plan and inserted from a preparedness aspect i think it is important so the the, the indian state did do basically like the 9-11 report and it did only it came out after i visited which was interesting you know i visited in 2018 and walked the ground and of every site uh, but I didn't have this report, so I got to read this report afterwards. And the, of course, they, the intelligence that was coming from across international organizations, you know, all the spooky organizations, was that this attack was getting ready to happen. Mm. And the, in, the Mumbai police even visited every one of the sites that was attacked and said, hey, are, you need to do more into preparation for what we believe is this attack. So they really get you to some of the, I think for me, some of the private and public relationships, right? So each, mm. so there are five sites attacked, you know, two hotels, a, a private cafe, a Jewish community center, and, and a public rail station. Four of those are, are publicly owned, so you can't make them do anything. Mm. But you, so they visited each site, the police did and said, you need to do more to protect yourself. And, and that's a really tough conversation to have with a, you know, a public organization who has its own security, but you, um, it's a, it's a complex in a city like this, especially. Did did just for my reference, because like I knew that they they have a history of I think suicide bombers, and so they were just they weren't expecting an insurgency, a, a takeover essentially, or a, st- a stopping of the city. Uh, do you know the preparation of the, each of the sites? Did they actually? I, I don't think the hotel is basically what what I hear from the hotel is that they probably didn't do anything. But did any of their sites? take that initiative to say, okay, we're going to put up measures here to, to try to prevent. Yeah, that was really interesting. And what we tried to get, so it was tough when we went to each site, like the two hotels, they're money-making organizations. They didn't want to talk about 2611. Matter of fact, we were quietly rushed to a different private room and they, you know, they erased all record of it. One of the cafes, which was the first one hit the Leopold cafe is not like that. Right. So they, they still have bullet holes in the walls, mm. grenade uh, holes in the floor and the, the two owners are well, very open about it. And they talked about being visited, but like you said, so Mumbai had a, a history of terrorist attacks of bombings. They had some major ones like in 2003, uh, and they had one in Bangladesh and in, in India recently. So they were on high alert for bombings. Mm. So they had actually changed, like at that cafe, the protocol and were searching every backpack coming through, which is a really eerie feeling. You're talking to the owner who was, at, his brother was at the front, when the two terrorists, if we walk through each attack, the two terrorists approached the cafe, they stopped, 
They look like they look like tourists with backpacks, and they would have been searched entering. They stopped. He saw them on the phones, and then all of a sudden they pull out AK-47s and enter shooting. Uh, and then you don't have anything against that. Yeah, it's nuts. So okay, so that was the that was the first event, right? Yeah. And, so let me yeah. walk you through the the attacks, right? So they land in two different sides of the. If you think of the city as like an island, kind of like Manhattan on two sides, which is incredible, at night using GPS, get, get to ground. They're supposed to sink their boats, and these are private, so one of them didn't. So we actually have one of the, the boats, pictures of the boat. Mm. Um, and, and they break up into four different groups, a group of four and three groups of two, and make their ways to their different attack sites. And they, most of them get in taxis, and they leave bombs in the taxis, homemade bombs that are meant to explode when they get out. And they take taxis, just hail taxis to their different sites. And there were f- five sites. There was a cafe, the Leopold Cafe. There was two hotels, the Taj Mahal Hotel, which is the most famous hotel basically in India. It's, it's iconic. Hmm. The Oberoi Hotel. There was a Jewish settlement house. And there was a, a train station, which is crazy. And I think you remember me talking about this, John. It's, I didn't understand. You know, there's like... Seven million people commute into Mumbai a day. There's only three north and south. So most people live outside of the city of Mumbai, just like most major cities, right? And they travel every morning. If you've ever seen a picture of trains in India, you've probably seen a train of of Mumbai, which is thousands of people hanging on to trains. Um, It's insane because seven million people commute in on three tracks. And and there's one. Yeah, Yeah. it's nuts. Um, As you think about infrastructure and stuff like that but there's one called the the cst terminals like the basically grand central station of mumbai that was the the basically the fifth site so these terrorists hit the ground break up into two-man groups basically uh get in taxis leave bombs and taxis and then go to each one of those attack sites mm. and again in the beauty of this the the coordination of this attack at about 9 30 p.m on the 26th of november 2008 they all attack so the what we say is basically that this mega city was was it made it they attacked that once with two man groups but it literally if you think about EMS that it felt like the entire city was under attack and that was yeah. the the chaos that they wanted to so not only did five attacks almost happen simultaneously but five bombs exploded in other locations in these taxis that are just driving around at the same time yeah, it's amazing to think of like uh, again putting on that hat of like social engineering. It doesn't. I mean, this highlights it so much. Seventeen million people, you right, live in the city. Yeah, in two thousand eight, yeah. ten people, uh, five different sites, and now all of a sudden, between uh, media and between rumor and between sounds and everything else, now a hundred percent of your area feels. Um, feels infiltrated and now you feel like you're being attacked by an army i mean that's really what happened uh with seven seven attacks it's uh it's what happened with paris um which is also i think happened in november so like there's several events that show that like it doesn't really take much to to shut down major cities um by the way we've built those systems uh, i think of um i did this uh in my undergrad i talked about uh are the are natural disasters actually happening more often or is this like the communication technology changed and we're looking at data and and that it's just like 
yeah, if, if there was a hurricane in the U.S., but in Japan they couldn't hear about it, then you know, blue skies, right? But now, because of uh, social media, especially now because of social media, let alone 2008, and because of media 24-hour news cycle, you're gonna you're gonna shut down major things without a lot of a lot of effort, um, which is kind of scary to think about and an implication we have to consider uh, to get on top of very quickly. I mean, how how do you decipher between we should tell everybody? And maybe let's figure out how to close this up very quietly so that we don't shut down all of our critical infrastructure. Yeah, true. yeah it, it, it is not easy. And, and you, you know, even when we were in Los Angeles, we asked, so the, the Mumbai attacks became almost synonymous around the globe, kind of like 9-11 did, is could you prevent it? And even in the U.S. in Congress, there were briefings on could we prevent a Mumbai-style attack in our major cities? That's a tough question, and I think I think we could. And there are some differences in uh, services from Mumbai, and I discovered some of those. And, and I'm not an expert in Mumbai, but I definitely saw you know they have like a colonial British system on purpose, so their natural policeman doesn't have a, a gun. And there, in this attack, there are heroes throwing rocks at terrorists with AK-47s because they don't have a weapon, but they're the first responder on the ground. Um, so you have, like we were talking about preparedness, but then you actually have response and, and how you respond, right? How do you respond in chaos like this? You exercise it, right? So you, you know better than I, you do these major exercises so you can exercise your command and control systems and exercise your response systems. And I think that's what Mumbai highlighted to this city um, was you know, basically the lack of investments in, in security infrastructure, the lack of they had SOPs for responding to major attacks, but they weren't imp implemented like, like they had. Uh, and then there was a major gap on basically the echelon of requesting support. But we've seen attacks like this in the past where you know, it was, it's the heroes, the first responders that you want somebody there immediately with the quite right equipment to respond. So here you have you know, terrorists with AK-47s and lots of grenades, and you have a, a single man responding with either no weapon or he has a he has a handgun and a flak vest that's meant to stop shrapnel and not a bullet and a plastic helmet and all those lessons were learned here I mean, i think from a from a disaster response even the ems control center there were they said almost 1400 phone calls to 911 basically between 9 p.m. and 2 a.m. during this attack that's basically a call every 4 minutes mm -hmm. uh, the the chaos that they wanted to and still, they beautifully executed. Yeah, I mean, they they took uh, unfortunately they took terrorism to its uh, to its true definition, right? Yeah, the fear. Um, yeah, it, when you're talking about that and talking about that that style of attack happening here, I think the huge difference is um, one. I think our intelligence acts, which is really great, but uh, I think a Boston bombing the amount of resources that responded to that, you know, they knew who they were very quickly um, and they were going door to door. I mean, there was such a huge force to try to uh, eliminate uh, the threat there. Um, but I, I think you'll get to this in a second. It took forever to get just resources in play. Who's, who's doing it and what resources do you use? And um, you know, who's control of that here? We had everything from, you know, this also happened with the Navy Yard shooting. Um, I talk about that because I was, uh, let's just say, intimately involved in, in that response and recovery to after action as well. 
And our biggest problem is that because it was in the national capital region, you had everyone responding. You had local, state, federal, you had private, you had people who were, you know, had the badge on, had the gear on, then you had off duty. I mean, literally everyone was there and they were all armed to the teeth. Unfortunately with Navy Yard, the, the big uh, lesson learned is, I don't know if you've studied that uh, yeah. event, the security officer uh, reholstered his weapon. And it's the most, uh, so just for the audience sake, so he, there's a security guard with a weapon. He hears uh, what he thinks might be shooting. You can see him on the camera, takes his gun out. He hears the, the sound stop because in a building, it sounds very different than uh, outside. Uh, so he doesn't know if it's shooting or not, clearly. And he reholsters his weapon. And that's right when the active shooter came around and killed him, um, which is a big uh, training opportunity, unfortunately. But going back to Mumbai, um, can you give us now the, so we know the, the locations. We know that they were getting intelligence through earpieces. We know that they weren't very well trained, but it was like a SEAL style training. But it did take forever to to get things in place. So can you talk about that? that timeline there for a second. How many hours was it before? Uh, can we actually start backwards? From start to finish, how many hours was it? And then in the middle of that, what was the chaos that they were doing? Yeah, yeah so, you know, these five sites, Leopold Cafe um, was a, you know, a site of a cafe. They basically just shot it up, killed 10 people on the spot, and then continued moving to our main target, which was the Taj Mahal. You had the train station, um, the main, basically, Grand Central Station of Mumbai, the Taj Mahal Hotel, which is the iconic hotel of, of India, basically. And you have this Oberoi Hotel, and then you have the Jewish Center. You didn't have this clarity at, at the time, right? So you just think it's a massive attack. So there is a response to all these sites. There are heroes responding to all of them. There, there is actually a railway police at the railway throwing chairs at the terrorists, just trying to, to survive. And 58 people were killed in a basically the 90 minutes they, they attack. But the, the plan of the terrorists was basically to besiege these sites. They wanted, like terrorism, they wanted international recognition of the attack. And unfortunately, they got that. As you talked about, uh, within hours, within three hours, the, there's not a security perimeter around these sites, but there is a media perimeter because everybody knows where the attacks are happening now. Uh, and especially in the hotels. So the, the two hotels, the Taj and the Oberoi, they entered, they shot the place up, and now they're basically holding ground, which was unusual for, for any terrorist attack at the time. You know, rather than just attack and, and then run, they're holding ground. And basically, especially in the hotels, going door to door, which is a kind of a terrorism lesson learned. They're just knocking on doors and hoping that the guests open. And then they, many of them did, and they're just killing them as they open the doors. Uh, it's nice. it, it's it's, it's nuts, but you, so the response, right? So three hours, you basically, you're starting to have the sites identified and, and the explosions have happened. You've, you've narrowed down the sites and you have the commander is actually out in the field and you got a lot of criticism for that. The overall commander is trying to, which I, I think it, we, we were talking about in Los Angeles was the, you're trying to kind of understand and disaster response about uh, a common communication system, but maintaining a common operating picture. You know, basically what we say in the military is everybody understands the ground was, was not done in Mumbai because there was so much confusion, even the locations. But some of these locations like the Taj Mahal, 
about getting the, the floor plans and all that, that caused a lot of first responders to die because they, it was so complex inside that hotel. And we stayed there. It is a labyrinth of old and new structures and hidden uh, everything. So we talked about, uh, so basically India, once they recognize where the sites are and recognize this is a major terrorist attack, the commander on the ground tells everybody who's in the perimeters to hold, hold what they have, basically set up a perimeter around them. And now you have a siege and they are waiting for a national level force to respond. It's called the national security group or the, basically the black hats, basically think of a Delta force. Um, Got it. To, to respond to this terrorist attack. Uh, unfortunately, that that group was in New Delhi on a th- three-hour flight away. Uh, plus, we talk about authorizations for a national response like this. They couldn't get – everybody thought they were waiting for these forces to come. And there's also – there's a Marine, what they call the Marcos, basically the Navy SEALs of the Indian Marines, a couple blocks away. They could have jogged to these sites. Uh, mm-hmm that also needed permission from the federal government to respond to the terrorist attacks. You had Indian Army, Navy. I mean, it was crazy. So three hours after the initial attack, these terrorists are going inside and just killing. People are dying. And you have, unfortunately, the security force on the outside waiting for a national response. So the the Black Hats and NSG are trying to make their way to Mumbai. They don't get there until 08 the next morning. That's nuts. Yeah, and they so and they only got there by wasted. I mean, it's yeah. just it's crazy to think about. Yeah, they yeah. they only got there by literally taking a civilian aircraft, getting there, and then they couldn't get from the airfield to these sites. Uh, and then once they once they actually even get there, it takes a while to plan their attack. They especially at the the Jewish settlement, they try to take a helicopter into the top. They get lit up. I mean, these are, I mean, these were. And you, t- you know, I talk about this, how to, how to eliminate a terrorist that's embedded in some dense urban terrain like this, concrete. Um, there are a lot of, and, and some, some heroes who, who almost disobeyed orders and still tried to enter. Mm. And the terrorists in the, the nine, basically their 9-11 commission report talk about how the terrorists were prepared for that by, as soon as they entered the, and they moved to high ground and the hotels did that for them, that uh, they moved to high ground so that anybody who entered any entrance that they knew about would just get a rain of our AK-47 and grenades on them. So the, the tactics that they used were, were crazy. Mm. Uh, and, and the one that we didn't talk about, which I think is important about, especially for disaster preparedness, so the, the two guys who attacked the train station, so they entered this train station, which I went to at 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, why, why would you attack a train station at, at night? Just not understanding the the the, yeah. the traffic of Mumbai. That's rush hour. That's everybody trying to leave. So it was it was like nine o'clock in the morning for me in New York City. It was crazy at that time. So they I'm, they go ahead. I'm like really blown away actually by that because I lived in Tokyo a couple times and at at night it is just as packed. And you said 50 people died right at the train station. Yeah, 58. 58. Yeah, that's. I would have actually thought it would have been a lot more uh, if you can cripple it. If you can, if you went into like Shibuya or if you went into one of these major uh, train stations during a, a rush hour moment, I mean, that's uh, as crazy as it sounds. I'm glad more people didn't die 
I mean, it yeah. would have been packed, right? So yeah, me too. I mean, you got to think too. You got yeah, you don't have trained again. These are privates in my mind, so they're spraying and praying with their AK forty-seven. So I don't have the numbers of wounded. I have the numbers dead. Got it. Uh, so yeah, a lot yeah. of people wounded, but they shoot it, shoot the place up for ninety minutes, and they basically go off script. We don't, we're not exactly sure, but they leave the train station, uh, and then basically go on a wild rampage. They try to enter a hospital, which is amazing and and a, a well a big lesson learned is this hospital heard about the attack happening nearby and they went into security protocol and locked it all down mm. locked every door locked every patient in their room uh, and then the terrorists tried to get in they couldn't so they saved hundreds of lives by doing that that's a good call out you know good good yep. for training of like you what's your coop uh, when yep. essentially when something like this happens yeah so the only reason i mentioned that they go on this rampage is that one of the head security personnel is, is a chief of the anti-terrorism squad who's very important in this story uh is headed to one of the sites right because all heroes are just responding he's driving to the train station doesn't notice the terrorists have left the train station and his car just they they ambush his car and they kill the head of the anti-terrorism just by a fluke of random bad luck mm. but that message goes across the radio john uh, and this is you know, we do this in the military. Like we don't send names across the radio when people die. We send, we encrypt the, the names, but his name as de dead had a huge impact across all of Mumbai's security forces that were at each one of these sites. And it had a huge impact to morale that, that he was dead. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the event is now winding up to be not just a, just international recognition, but so many call outs of um you know psychological warfare um urban warfare um coup planning i mean there's there's a lot of lessons learned here um you know even you're talking about the hotel structure um typically interestingly enough we want we want floor pans to be very complex because that usually save lives but uh, when it's taken over, then it's now it's re now it's reversed. Now you have a lot and you have to clear. So like if people haven't done like active shooter or active assailant uh, incidents, but the clearing of buildings takes forever because you want to go to room by room and, and you're passing over people who are wounded. You have to because you don't know how many threats are left. And so like to, if you have a really complex system, uh, that's also going to take forever uh, just in itself. And um, one thing I thought uh, was really interesting, we were talking about how they were told, quote unquote, these privates were told to to take the beds, right, and put them against the windows to light them on fire to make it even look even worse against psychological warfare. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you gotta think, again, you know, what is the purpose of these attacks? And they're, they're meant to die in place, but they, they wanted that international media attention and they got it. And they get told that the two, the four guys inside the Taj Mahal, multiple times have you started your fires and they, they 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 hadn't so they kept getting told to start fires by taking the mattresses and put them up against the windows and light them and eventually they do so as an ems guy not only are you fighting active shooters but now you you're fighting a massive fire with everybody's trapped inside their rooms it's just a, a nightmare scenario uh, but they got the image that they wanted which was basically the taj mahal this iconic i mean almost like the world trade centers burning yeah so just for the sake of time we're definitely gonna have you come back on and probably dive into this a bit more but 
we're we're looking at this situation here. I don't know. I've compared it to several events, especially for maybe the U.S. perspective of people uh, understanding those events, 9-11, Boston bombing, but also internationally, um, you know, 7-7 in Paris and Mumbai is, uh, I still remember when it happened actually and just being like confused of like, wait, is this a military takeover? Because I still remember um, the, ta- the images of the Taj Mahal and I'm like, wait, how is this working? And um, at the time as a, you know, younger guy, I was like, wait, is that a mall? I actually thought it was a mall, not the Taj Mahal, which is one of the stupidest things in the world. But I'm I'm now looking at it from a planning prevention and response uh, perspectives. And so in terms of lessons learned, you've already started to highlight several of the lessons learned. Can you go through and say, okay, if I'm talking to uh, an individual who's on this, uh, on this podcast, listening to this podcast, and it's their job to do preventative of terrorist attacks. And they're working with the DOD and they're working with all these other groups who response organizations. We even have uh, members of the FBI listening to that, um, to this podcast. And so if you're going to give them an out brief saying you need to do X, Y, and Z in preparation for these kind of style of attacks, especially when it's so well coordinated, especially when you have intelligence um, being fed constantly, especially when, you know, the, these these individuals are basically giving SEAL uh, level training and or, um, um, you know, communications throughout. What can we do to limit the loss of life? And, um, you know, how do we protect our systems, essentially? No, that's not a hard question at all, John. <laughs> it was a uh, long-winded one, too, so that's yeah, good. No, but it's like, yeah. look, I'm not, I'm not an expert in securing megacities, but I've studied this attack in detail. And I, I think it was important that we visited 10 years later, really in the same location, saying, could this happen again in this same city? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, based on what we saw, um, it could. And some of that's based on, on echelons above us, uh, basically national and city level investments in infrastructure, investments in EMS. Uh, so one of the ways you prevent this, one is the intel sharing aspect of it. And I think that was happening was it happening at the level that it should have? But the intel was being pushed down in this case. And it was not, of course, being actioned, right? Because you can't action every bit of in- intelligence. But what you can do, and I think is important, in, is layered security aspects, right? So you, you don't have a, you can't militarize your security. And that's, of course, that public versus private. You know, the public, these hotels don't want an image of a security state. Uh, and, but we have figured out ways to do basically hidden security aspects, but this started, this started out in blue water in the Navy. Um, and how did they get through the Navy, the Coast Guard and the shore police? Most of that was because there was underinvestments, right? Like 20 boats out there that weren't there at the time. You have good heroes that are hiring fishing boats to do patrols because they don't have gas for their own boats. Mm, um, and, and go ahead. No, I'm just, that's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's, I, it's still a fact today. So the, the, the kind of, you know, of all the solutions, right. The, the, the commission and the investments you're going to do to change this, you know, you're supposed to buy more boats, uh, but they don't have the, the gas for them. You're supposed to buy helicopters to get people, right. So you, you're not going to respond in New York city uh, over the ground. Right. So either you have people on motorcycles, which they do, or you have air assets that can move your immediate response personnel quickly in a mega city like this, you're not going to drive there. And, and that was a lesson so that you need helicopters. Oh yeah. But you need 
to invest in the money it's going to take to keep them maintained and to keep them gassed and ready to go. And cities decide like, well, that's, that's a risk I'm going to take. I'm not going to invest in that. And this is what we saw happening. Uh, so this, this layered security system, right? And, and we had this in the United States and, and I've really looked at the, the Las Vegas shootings, uh, the shooter, uh, and we had a, you know, a, a, a hero with a gun on him within a minute. Not, not, this was a three-day siege. And there, there are many reasons for it, but I, I'm against, you know, you have to invest in training all the way down to the individual man on the street, right? And this is what we saw. Mo even if you had a gun in Mumbai, you're a policeman with a gun, you hadn't fired it in two years. They just didn't have ammo. Ease. No yeah. ammo, no training, no. <laughs> yeah, so the, the list is long, right? And I'm not criticizing, like I said, heroes in this event all yeah. across the board. This is about investing in your layered security systems, right? But the, if you have to understand the culture, right, from passism, your Buddhism, all those aspects, you have to have this layered response. So even if you have the layer of preparedness, you have to have your exercises in place on who's going to respond immediately. And lesson learned here is you can't wait, right? People are dying by the minute. People will have to, even in disorganized fashion, have to to respond right so we see that in yeah. first respond your first active shooters across the world right your 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 school policemen you have to move forward and close the distance and engage the enemy even if it's just to know where he's at right uh that that was another huge aspect of this and, and i think they learned that but and they created basically a national basically the, that nsg the black hats they created one in mumbai and they have um first response teams, recon one, things like that, that will respond faster. I still arguably think it, it won't be enough if this happened again, but it's all about how much you care to invest in your EMS. So yeah, there's, there's a several highlights there in my world, the emergency management world, we call that a business impact analysis where um, we go through and we say, what's the risk versus reward and um, like the, the couple examples I give people is that we have the technology, we can put parachutes on planes, on commercial planes, but we don't because the cost of maintaining parachutes and gas and weight and all that stuff, they basically unfortunately looked at it and said, you know, the rarity of a plane going down versus putting a parachute on every plane, it's not, it doesn't equal out in terms of financial perspective. And it's like the, the really brutal side of, um, um, of emergency management of like, you only have so many resources, where can you put those resources? You don't have, people sometimes forget, we don't have unlimited resource. And so resources, personnel, resources, maintenance, resources, cost. Um, and so um, that that's a factor. I will say in the US, some of the things that you're highlighting, thankfully we already have in place. The fact that the black hats were like, oh, maybe we should have, uh, you know, a group here in the fourth largest city or one of the top four largest cities in the world, maybe that's a good idea. That's, that's kind of nuts that that even uh, had to happen. I like how you, you've noted, and I, I've been uh, hearing you throughout this uh, presentation or this, this conversation, you've called every single person who's tried to do something a hero. And I agree with that. Um, I agree with that hundred um, percent. Anytime somebody puts themselves in danger, whether they're trained, they're not trained, uh, is a big deal. You're talking about rocks being thrown, going back to the Navy Yard shooting. A person saved 30 people with a blowhorn 
when the active shooter came into a stairwell and pointed off, pointed a shotgun, which is crazy, a shotgun versus a blowhorn. The guy throws a blowhorn and he misfires and then runs away and there's 30 people behind them unarmed. And so doing something is always better than doing nothing. Um, creating your own version of chaos. The difference between an insurgency when they have their earpieces and a, typically an active shooter, active shooter is psychologically broken and they want body count and like we have found more than one, which is absolutely disgusting, like uh, that they have a euphoric experience that, you know, bodily fluid, whatever, they get excited and, um, you know, they don't want confrontation. This was very different. They were okay with confrontation. They were prepared for confrontation. They were constantly being fed information to be able to not become psychologically broken. All right. So you have a, this is like, um, like two totally different aspects of active shooter versus terrorists. And this is why sometimes FBI designates active shooters and terrorists differently. Um, even though they kind of have the same goal, sometimes that notoriety of what they've done. Um, and the, and the last point that, uh, you're, you're really making very strong here is training. I don't care where people stand on the issue of, uh, how armed security forces are. Mumbai attack is a pretty obvious answer of, of maybe where you should fall, but training, 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 training means everything. And the resources of training, our company Doberman pushes training very hard. We have the readiness lab, which has these podcasts, which a lot of people to think about it, but we also, you know, we go to the, uh, urban, uh, search and rescue trainings and we go and we do trainings for first responders and we do trainings all over the place because, Hey, you need to understand a coordinated response in this stuff and, uh, really great call outs. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to leave you with the last word, uh, talking about, uh, your perspective of Mumbai and also, uh, just because, uh, I'm a fan of what you're doing and the, the work that you've done, if you can just happy to give a pitch i'll even put this in the the notes for the urban warfare project podcast so tell us about mumbai and tell us about uh, your podcast yeah so mumbai again a fascinating uh, study not just because of what happened and actually walking the ground and which is amazing I, I tell everybody i had the dream job to do that um because i did envision like this almost dystopia mega city of just complex like downtown mega city aspect and that's actually when you walk the ground not the feeling that i got it was the, these each site was actually pretty open so that was something different that you just don't get unless you are and i have a dream job that i get to study this stuff and get paid to be a student right and i agree with you on training um you have a job everybody and especially um even in the militaries we value so strongly leaders and training that you're basically a student of life and you're always studying or training in in preparations while you're doing your job and we saw that especially you and i did in los angeles with the swat team and their training schedule was they're either on an operation or they're training I, right. I, I can't value that so my podcast is just that it's my studying of the full spectrum of operations from disaster prayer you know disaster response to you know high intensity warfare so i have ex other experts come onto my show and um, I think that the whole world, we all have to continue to learn. Yeah, good call out. It, this is obviously a, a, a good moment to note that emergency manager dealing with 90% of what I deal with is natural disaster, hurricanes, taking out critical infrastructure and populations, 10% dealing with 
terrorist and the really, really big stuff of a nuke went off in a city, whatever. But this is where the worlds collide. If you have uh, an insurgency or you have, um, uh, you know, a war happen, a good example is World War II. Who's doing the recovery in World War II? Well, DOD, but the DOD is really taking on emergency management function of restoring critical infrastructure. So there's so much emergency managers can learn from uh, historical events, whether it's Mumbai attack or otherwise, you know, war events. And so this is, uh, again, a huge fan of the work you've done and the Urban Warfare Project podcast. Definitely check it out if you're one of our audience members. And uh, we want you back on sometime, uh, John, because lack of time. Oh, my gosh. I just want to talk about this for like the next four hours. So just for everyone listening to the show. So uh, I already told you about the podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. If you have questions for John, you can reach out to him through our social media channels. We'll tag him in all of our stuff. You can also start listening to his podcast, which I'm sure he has contact information there. You can also, if you don't want to ask it to the general uh, population, which you should, because there's going to be a lot of uh, really good response there. But if it's an individual request, you can always send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. We'll send it over to John and uh, we want you back on every week. So John, thanks again for coming on and, Uh, For the audience, we'll see you again.